to Algo Farm. I'm your host, John Bazaar. I'm an associate professor of pharmacy practice at the supporting sponsor of Algo Farm at the Bill Gann College of Pharmacy. It is Thursday, January 28th, 2021. I've uh, got a couple um, notable updates to talk about. We'll get to the NCCN uh, recommendations for vaccinating uh, patients with cancer for COVID-19 uh, shortly. But first, I want to talk about uh, the most recent FDA approval uh, earlier this week, or maybe late last week, of nivolumab and cabozantinib, so that's Opdivo and Cabometics, for metastatic renal cell carcinoma. So this is a TKI and immune checkpoint inhibitor combination approved. We already have, uh, you know, uh, one of these regimens approved in, in pembrolizumab and exitinib. There's a velumab and exitinib data. Um, so there's, there's some history here of combining uh, drugs up front um, and being better than sunitinib, which is kind of the old standard of care uh, for treating uh, first-line treatment of metastatic renal cell carcinoma. So just as, as kind of some background, sunitinib was the first drug on the scene here uh, as far as a VEGF targeting tyrosine kinase inhibitor. And sunitinib is a multi-kinase, the shotgun kinase, right? It hits a lot of different kinases uh, from uh, an inhibition standpoint. Uh, so this was kind of our old standard of care. Uh, it's been compared to pizopanib, and it's kind of equivalent in the frontline setting with patients favoring pizopanib from a tolerability standpoint. But sunitinib is kind of what everyone gets compared to. Um, it's not yet chlorambucil in terms of CLL. There is still a role for sunitinib or just a single TKI like, uh, like we'll talk about. All right, so from a history standpoint, there was a nivolumab plus ipilimumab study that showed it was better in terms of overall survival compared to sunitinib in the frontline setting. However, that benefit was only reserved for those that had poor or intermediate risk renal cell carcinoma, which consists of things, this risk stratification consists of things like how long from diagnosis to starting treatment, more than a year, some lab values, LDH, um, and that's using the, uh, the modified criteria, not the, the older Memorial Sloan Kettering Cancer Center criteria. You can find those calculators online. Uh, key point here though, uh, they actually modified their study protocol in that Ipinevo study not to evaluate formally if it was better than sunitinib in the favorable group, which tells you that it wasn't, all right? All right, so then we get this pembrolizumab exitinib data published in the New England Journal of Medicine a couple uh, years ago, and we talked about this recently on the pod that showed it was better than sunitinib, and it, the benefit was observed and consistent of benefit in all subgroups, and it looked like that in the New England Journal of Medicine. Well, then just recently, there's a Lancet Oncology publication after more follow-up. And remember, these favorable risk folks have favorable risks, so they live longer. So it takes longer follow-up to see if there is a mortality benefit from combination therapy versus just TKI. And there wasn't in the favorable risk group. And that kind of flew under the radar, which is why I pointed that out on the pod. Um, currently, our favorite guidelines do still recommend pembrolizumab combination as, as a preferred option for the first-line setting for all categories, favorable, intermediate, and poor risk, I'll be watching to see if they modify that based on this longer follow-up, that there is no benefit, at least in terms of mortality, from upfront dual treatment with uh, Pembro and Exitinib in favorable risk. So in that setting, we have the approval of nivolumab plus cabozantinib. Uh, nivolumab, pembrolizumab, different drugs, same fruit, okay? Same drug, you know, uh, work very similarly. Cabozantinib is a little bit uh, even more of a multi-kinase TKI. Maybe has a little extra benefit, added benefit in renal cell carcinoma because one of the resistance pathways, uh, one of the ways that kidney cancer develops resistance to things like sunitinib is, is activation of 
uh, of a, I think it's axle kinase, which is inhibited by cabozantinib. So here we have nevocabozantinib compared to sunitinib. This is called Checkmate 9ER or Checkmate 9er. Did I catch a 9er in there? Uh, the primary endpoint was progression-free survival, which uh, was 16.6 months with combination versus 8.3 Hazard ratio of 0.51, pretty narrow confidence interval as well, 0.41 to 0.64. But that's PFS. Now, if we look at the ov overall survival data, where the median OS was not reached in either group, so we're still very early in evaluating this for overall survival. From what we have, though, 21% of patients passed away in the combination arm versus 30% in the student arm. So numerically, the overall survival appears to be favoring combination therapy, as you might expect. The Kaplan-Meier curves, which you could you can find on Twitter by searching Checkmate 9ER, uh, which I did, uh, as well as in the PI. The Kaplan-Meier curves do seem to separate quite nicely. Uh, however, uh, there aren't a lot of folks uh, that have been followed for, for more than 12 to 18 months, so there's a whole lot of variation and, and variability likely in that. Not a lot of confidence in that Kaplan-Meier curve once you get further out from time point zero. Um, the um, the makeup of this the study is about 500 patients, uh, you know, per you know in you know uh, in this study about 300 per arm something like that, mostly intermediate 188 patients per group in the intermediate risk, about 65 for, per group in the poor risk, and 73 per group in the favorable risk, and this was present this hasn't been published yet, uh, Checkmate Niner. But it has been presented at ESMO 2020 back in the fall. So here are the overall survival um, uh, and hazard ratios and confidence intervals by risk group uh, from that presentation, which I found on Twitter. So take that for granted. But it was a screenshot of the presentation, so I think it's pretty good. All right, so for uh, I'm going to give you the hazard ratios first. So for favorable risk, hazard ratio was 0.84, favoring Cabo Nevo compared to Sunitinib. For intermediate, 0.7. For poor risk, 0.37. Uh, the only one of those confidence intervals that does not cross one is the poor risk group. Um, that 95% confidence interval is 0.21 to 0.66, so kind of narrow. The confidence interval in the favorable risk group is 0.35 to 1.97, so very, very wide. And of course, there is a, a trend clear to see, 0.84 to 0.7 to 0.37, that the poor risk patients derive the greatest benefit from combination therapy. And I will be shocked if there is overall survival benefit at, at full follow-up for combination group versus sunitinib. Um, that's based on looking at the data, the large confidence interval, as well as looking at the history that we haven't seen benefit of combination therapy in favorable risk group with combination therapy uh, yet in, in a publication. It's very much shades of Keynote 426 with that Pembro uh, Exitinib uh, study published initially in NDJM that I talked about um, coming up. Uh, and this is, uh, you know, I've used this analogy before about if you, you know, combine all of my World Series titles uh, with all of, you know, the Boston Red Sox World Series titles and all of David Ortiz's World Series titles, we have a however many World Series titles combined, uh, but I'm not. Uh, you know, I never won one. Um, so, you know, the, the predominant type of patient uh, in Checkmate 9 are we're intermediate risk folks, and the favorable risk groups are in there. And if you say there's benefit broadly, which is the approval, uh, it looks that way because they include all comers. But if you, if you tease that out, I don't think we're going to end up seeing overall survival benefit in the favorable risk group. But more to come, something certainly I will be uh, following uh, and looking for. 
Um, from a toxicity, this is kind of what you would expect. You know, more diarrhea in the combination group, more liver toxicity, uh, quite a bit more liver toxicity, grade three or four liver toxicity, 11% versus 5%. More itching uh, in combination, 19 versus 4.4%. More dysphonia, 17% versus 3.4%. Uh, and more upper respiratory tract infections, 20% versus 8%. A little surprising there. Uh, and then uh, quite a bit more cytopenias in the sunitinib arp, which does inhibit FLT3. Uh, you probably would not see that if this had been compared to pazopinib. Uh, so it is FDA approved. So certainly we're seeing, you know, these combinations are now becoming the standard of care. Uh, TKI plus an immune checkpoint inhibitor for first-line treatment. Again, bottom line, the benefit likely and appears to be limited to those that are inter intermediate and poor risk. But we're still early on in, in following uh, this data uh, for this Nevo-Cabo combination. Okay, so moving on to our next and last topic here. Uh, I did a pod uh, back in December when we got the first, you know, the Pfizer COVID-19 vaccine approved in the United States. Uh, I had my second dose of that a couple weeks ago, so I'm feeling good, hopefully teeming with antibodies. I've seen, a, I've seen a, some folks uh, on Instagram uh, uh, posting pictures of their <laughs> their antibodies, saying they've got some IgG antibodies. Uh, that's great to see. Uh, I assume I'm in the same boat there, having some antibodies, feeling good. Um, but I talked about on that pod how you know patients with cancer, uh, not necessarily patients with cancer, but patients on chemo or immunosuppressive therapy were excluded from those studies. So uh, I have no doubt that they're safe, just as safe in patients with cancer as in the general population. But the efficacy, we don't know. And these are recommendations from, from the National Comprehensive Cancer Network, NCCN, uh, from their Vaccine Advisory Committee. Their recommendations, not guidelines, and they do have caveats that they will be, these are preliminary, and they'll be updated when there is more evidence. And I think what they mean is they'll be updated when there is evidence. Uh, so I'm going to kind of distill this down and give a, a, just a couple, you know, just kind of my commentary on it. Uh, and this is widely available online. You can Google this and find this. Um, for those patients that have received uh, stem cell transplant or cellular therapy, like CAR-T, uh, you should wait three months after uh, transplant or cellular therapy uh, to give them COVID vaccine. Uh, there is, of course, the caveat that at that point, especially for allotransplant patients, they're probably going to be on graft-versus-host disease prophylaxis, and that very well may blunt the effectiveness of the vaccine therapy. Uh, for those with solid tumors, uh, you give the vaccine as soon as they're available, right? When they come in, you give the vaccine, okay? As soon as you got the vaccine, you give it to them. For those with hematologic malignancies, you still give the vaccine when it's available, but if you're receiving as a patient uh, intensive chemo, so seven plus three, induction chemo, uh, I, I would say this, any chemo where you expect them to be neutropenic for like more than a week, for 10 days, 10 days, 14 days, 21 days a month, you would wanna wait till ANC recovery. Which, which is just basically common sense. Now they don't make that recommendation for solid tumors about waiting till ANC recovery, like in between cycles of, of carboetoposide or between uh, you know, Folfox or AC, but just because for solid tumors, we don't use as intensive chemo. Our doses are not that high. We don't give as long a chemo, uh, like in the case of seven plus three. So the duration of neutropenia is not long enough to probably make a difference or not much of a difference in terms of uh, immune response, since that immune response uh, doesn't just happen uh, in a day or two. It takes it takes a couple weeks for that really to kick in. Now they do list a couple, you know, a couple caveats here, um, and that is that you know we we don't know, we don't have the data, and it's very likely possible. You know, we don't know that there is reduced response even if you give it in between cycles of AC 
or the day of AC. We don't know what's the best time uh, to give this. Uh, you know, certain drugs like cyclophosphamide uh, are not just myelosuppressive, but they are immunosuppressive as far as inhibiting T cell activity, and that likely has a role in mounting, you know, an effective, long-lasting uh, immune response to uh, to these vaccines. However, if you are working uh, in your clinic, your hospital, trying to figure out how do we prioritize the use of uh, or the distribution of these vaccines because it's a hot commodity. I talked about this on the pod from an economic standpoint. It's a scarce resource. Everybody wants it. They do give some uh, their opinion on who how you should prioritize this, which is nice to have if you uh, have pushback from other folks about how to prioritize this. You can fall back on uh, these recommendations from experts. So first they say prioritize patients with active cancer on treatment, including transplant patients, cellular therapy, and those that uh, are going to start treatment or have finished their treatment in the last six months. That's kind of priority one that excludes people on hormonal therapy, right? So your prostate cancer patients, your breast cancer patients just on tamoxifen, not those folks. And the next category is, all right, so of our folks uh, you know, on treatment, uh, who are even the highest risk of that? And those would be your older folks above 65, those with comorbidities like lung disease and cardiovascular disease, maybe men, maybe obesity, which we've seen as being risk factors, uh, and then including social and demographic factors, you know, poverty, access to care. Uh, I would say patients uh, who uh, are receiving treatment but are still working as an essential frontline worker. Uh, and those, there are social disparities in folks who work those jobs that, that, that should be considered as well in prioritizing utilization uh, and distribution rollout of the vaccine. Uh, I, think I'm, I think that's pretty close to what I said uh, back on the pod. They, there is a note in here about also considering uh, vaccinating household contacts, so their caregivers, their partners, because if these patients receiving treatment are going to get COVID, that's going to be their likely uh, source uh, is from a household contact, from a caregiver, or from a partner, which I also mentioned on the pod as well. So really, we're making just educated scientific guesses here uh, on how on how to use this. And I hopefully, you know, some of these folks are following these folks in a systematic way as part of a study, uh, just a, you know, simple observational study, or at least they're they plan to go back retrospectively and look at this to to get a rough idea of the effectiveness because this is going to be going on vaccine rollout distribution for the, you know, the next year, probably, if you listen to what folks are saying. Okay, so that's what I have to talk about today. Thank you so much uh, for listening, for the kind words on social media and the comments, the likes, reviews, all that good stuff. Uh, follow me on Twitter, at PharmDeetNib. I usually tweet out uh, the episodes. Uh, didn't last week. It's a uh, if I were a farmer, it's harvest time right now for me in terms of teaching and all sorts of stuff. So very, very, very busy, very busy man right now. Uh, you can also follow me on both, uh, follow the podcast on both Twitter and Instagram at OncoFarmPod. Until I talk to you again, remember, doses matter.